this warm welcome to me so as an introduction uh, because the topic of my address today relates to history we can look at a few fundamental concepts uh, uh, related to history and don't worry i won't bore you with uh, academic uh, definitions or uh, you know discussions so these conceptions they relate to the manner in which we regard history itself mainly in the current setting as primary and academic discipline as something we all learn uh, right at school college university and it's a, as a way of understanding the world as a way of understanding our own selves by studying our past so this much can be said about an understanding of history and uh, but much of the way in which we are taught history and how we regard history what is our outlook towards history comes from our formal education like i said our school and college and university but this education it does not teach us how our ancestors how our own forefathers regarded history or in other words what the native conception of history is we we'll quickly look at that uh, i'm sure all of you in this room know uh, the deshi bharatiya bhasha word for in, uh, for history that is itihasa so it comes from the sanskrit word itihasa which means which can be split as iti plus ha plus asa what it means that it literally happened thus iti plus ha plus asa so in our tradition ramayana mahabharata and to an extent the puranas all of these are called itihasa uh, for example we are in north india and throughout north india uh, it's common to you know often hear the term ram katha ramayan katha bharat katha this mahabharata katha katha vachan and while the word katha used here it is used in the sense of a story or a narrative uh, but subconsciously uh, the cultural in the cultural context its implied meaning is also itihasa so in our tradition itihasa is a recited katha vachak katha vachan itihasa is recited as distinct from the contemporary study or reading of history so this is a very very fundamental distinction that uh, you know we all need to kind of pay attention uh, i'll give you a couple of examples now when i say ramayana's itihasa all of you must have heard of sita kalyana or parvati kalyana this can happen in any temple anywhere in india so you can fix a marriage between rama and sita and the purohit and everybody performs that marriage you call your friends family gathering so that's an auspicious occasion similarly with gauri and shankar ka kalyana so these are also celebrated as festivals why this is important from a perspective of conception of indian history what this symbolizes is that it is a living tradition all these uh deities sita rama shiva parvati all these deities they are also the family members in that sense it is a living tradition and it also establishes or uh, it also throws a light on the cultural and civilizational continuity as opposed to being uh, a memory you know a memory of mere dates and events like you are not we are really not bothered about when ram was really born so all these fierce debates about you know the dating of ramayana although that's important from a, a contemporary modern academic framework but 
how do we perceive it as indians we are not really bothered about vendra ram was actually born although varmiki says the precise nakshatra gotra all these things in uh, in the ramayana we are not we as practicing hindus don't it, these things don't really they are peripheral to our understanding of ramayana mahabharata so from that perspective we need to make this distinction between itihasa and history as a contemporary academic discipline now to make this even more clear you compare our ramayana and mahabharata with the greek epics or the latin uh, epic uh, and mythological literature both of them are ancient civilizations like india but both greece ancient greece and rome their cultures they are not living they have been decimated long back so you don't have a homeric recital anymore but you have a rama ramkatha everywhere by the dukan corner of some temple here you step out 2 kilometers you will find one temple you can yourself sit there with one harmonium and start your ramkatha this is absent because they have lost that cultural and civilizational continuity so you want to read ancient latin or greek or study their epics you have to look at it from an outsider from an academic like you go to a museum that is approach that is how that is the only way you can study or understand those cultures but here you are living these cultures that is the fundamental difference here so to put this another way our conception of history or itihasa is not a mere fact it is a value just to illustrate a diff- i mean just to give a analogy of uh, how this uh, what is a fact and a value water is a fact h2o we all know the chemical composition thirst is also a fact right so i am thirsty there is water and it belongs to you you satisfy my thirst it becomes a value so how deeply these things are embedded in our culture is that you know if you don't give water if you don't offer water to your guest or to a thirsty person you will be born in the next birth as a lizard at least this is how uh, uh, that's the saying in karnataka so this becomes this value it becomes embedded in your cultures and civilizations dna so when you you know look at history itihasa all these things from this perspective a lot of confusions and a lot of uh, uh, what you call new light or reexamination there is a possibility for reexamination and so q and a in line so uh, after this much is also spoken about you know the goals of history aims of history so i'll, I'll uh, briefly finish that now after i have outlined the difference between itihasa history how you can look at the same subject in a different way i do not mean to discount or you know just uh, do away with a scientific study of our past otherwise all these researches in civilization i mean sarasvati civilization indus valley civilization that would be meaningless so in my view an honest study of history must lead to two things primarily one a truthful understanding of the past and two a courage to face and digest past mistakes that we ourselves have made and then learn from them so that you don't repeat that again because unless we do both both, both these things we cannot build a robust society and a country based on false and distorted readings of our own past so as i see it there is no one single goal of history or so to say 
because ultimately if you have some goal all said and done this kind of our reading of history uh, as an academic discipline it will it is largely subjective if you look at it except for some established concrete facts it is largely subjective and it's an ongoing process and if you have a goal it will eventually lead to the politicization of history because the moment you have set a goal you will set a committee the moment you set a committee you have a bunch of people who will occupy positions of power so their goals are objectively out of the window so but unfortunately for the last 70 years this is what has happened uh, uh, like they say the first lesson of politics is to forget the first lesson of history which is what has happened in these 70 years <clears throat> uh, from that perspective an honest whatever i mean it is implied when you say history or any discipline why can't you take these liberties why can't you form committees and say mathematics right why can't it be politicized although that that is also happening people are claiming that mathematical is a tool for patriarchal oppression that is the latest claim that's going on that's a separate topic so in a sense the lesson of history is a continuous search for truth and the courage to tell it fearlessly and openly and because we have failed to do that deliberately for the last 70 years uh we can begin this by looking at a quote begin quote it is an ominous sign of the kind that indian history is being viewed in official circles in the perspective of recent politics the official history of the freedom movement starts with the premises that india lost independence only in the 18th century and had thus an experience of subjection to foreign power for only two centuries real history on the other hand teaches us that the major part of india lost independence about 5 centuries before and merely changed masters in the 18th century close quote these are the words uh, that were written by the legendary historian asi majumdar he wrote this sometime in 1948 or 1949 about what was happening in the history establishment just one or two years after india achieved independence this was a time when you know all these superstars eminent historians like romila thapar were not were, they were no way on the scene this was what uh, rc majumdar had observed and he set this in the context of uh, uh, a government committee that was set up to write an official history of the freedom struggle of india one uh, important factor in the freedom struggle of course the biggest name that comes in indian freedom struggle is mohandas karmchand gandhi and asi majumdar said categorically that i will make this committee of this team of scholars will make a dispassionate assessment of the role of gandhi that committee was disbanded and asi majumdar working alone produced three volumes of the history of the freedom movement of india it is still available not in bookstores unfortunately and a crappy committee alternatively was set up headed by a bureaucrat called tarachand uh asim majumdar released his uh, <clears throat> three volumes by working alone for 6 years tarachand worked for worked for 20 years and came out with bonus water anyway so 
Yeah, so what happened to the study of Indian history from then onwards is today well known, but in just to put that in one line, the politicization and the fall of history as a discipline has been completely eradicated. I mean, it has lost any relevance or any value. Any good work in the field of history in the last 70 years has come out of out of the official establishment by independent scholars. So in practical terms, this politicization of history means this. That is, in the real world, what has happened as a result of writing government-sponsored histories. In practical terms, it means that at least three generations of our children have learned distorted false history about their own country and culture. The latest specimen of this distortion includes the likes of people like Swarabhaskar. So the essence of the consequences of this distorted history, I'll quickly sum up in three or four bullet points. This is actually the distorted from the last 16 years. India never had a great civilization and culture. And any greatness that India had, all the great elements and facets of Indian civilization and culture, all of them were a gift of alien invaders, starting with the Aryans who came from outside because, because they are barbarians. We can't do anything good. Right? So we have to be saved by others from 10,000 years. So native Indians were barbaric, regressive, weak, and therefore, they were invaded repeatedly. And further, therefore, we deserve to be invaded either by China or somebody else. This is the logical consequence. Now, when this kind of nonsense is taught, right from early school level, all the way up to university, why are we surprised? Or why, why do we feel sad when the same kids who read the same kind of history in the same, using the same textbooks, when they grow up, when they are continuously told that their country, its culture and Indians, bloody Indians in general, are a bunch of buffoons and idiots, when this is what is drilled into them, why are we surprised that they take the next ticket available to America or Australia or Europe? Why are you surprised? This, this is what your education teaches you. And then you talk about brain drain. This is where it is. Alright. So, to pull off such wholesale generalizations about an entire civilization, this is the oldest civilization so far. To pull off such wholesale generalizations, it's imagine the kind of scale of distortion that, uh, you know, uh, imagine the scale on which our history has to be distorted. To pull this off, right from that level. And nowhere is this distortion most glaring than in the area of the medieval, so-called medieval Muslim rule in India. So quickly, here are some defining characteristics of uh, medieval Muslim rule. It's called medieval Muslim rule. I would call it uh, a more accurate characterization is the Muslim period of India. So these are some of the main characteristics. All-round oppression of Hindus continuous assault on their way of life, traditions, customs, their institutions, large-scale temple destructions, you know, Hindus as dhimis or zimi status, second-class, third-rate citizens, like uh, one uh, uh, account I was uh, reading, is that uh, during Gilji's time, for example, a Hindu had no right, except uh, if a Muslim tax collector would come, he would uh, have to bow his head all the time, 
and throws uh, his cover his mouth with his hand. And if the tax collector wanted to spit in his mouth, he would have to open his mouth and swallow the spit of the tax collector and not show any disgust on his face. This was the status of Hindus. And you could do this with impunity. And current historical distortions are aimed at whitewashing or hiding or even denying that such uncomfortable, such brutal historical truths were actually historical realities. This is the impact of distortion. And this same principle of distortion, needless to say, is also at work in the case of Tipu Sultan, the tyrant of Mysore. So, it was relatively less, uh, lesser number of atrocities could be uh, committed. And because we are in Delhi, let's begin on a relevant point. Quote, Your Majesty would soon proceed to prosecute a holy war against the infidels. Should those infidel Brahmin Marathas direct their power, the hands of the heroes of the faith, that is the Muslim faith, the Muslim soldiers in this part of the world shall be raised for their punishment. We should unite in carrying on a holy war against the infidels. Delhi, the seat of the government of the Mohammedan faith, has been reduced to this state of ruin so that the infidels altogether prevail. We should unite in carrying a holy war against the infidels and free these regions of Hindustan in the service of Islam. This was Tipu Sultan's letter to the Afghan king Zamansha Durani. It was written sometime in the uh, in 1794 or 95, uh, in which Tipu invites uh, Zamansha to invade India and he calls him explicitly to establish the sword of Islam in the country and free it from the darkness of Kafirs, Hindus. So at that time, uh, Delhi was pretty much uh, under the control of uh, Marathas. So he wanted to free Delhi from his Kafir. And this letter is only a representative of hundreds of such letters that Tipu wrote to the Caliph in Turkey apart from Zamansha. Uh, it is similar in tone and tenor to the French whom he considered as a allies uh, to invade and occupy India and then share the spoils of the conquest. This is uh, Tipu Sultan's own words. I'll uh, give you some more details uh, in the coming uh, slides. Now we'll look at the reincarnation of Tipu Sultan. Over the last 40 odd years, <clears throat> up to the present time, this unqualified Islamic bigot called Tipu Sultan has been hailed as a freedom fighter, as a tiger of Mysore, as a liberator, as a patron of Hinduism, as a tolerant ruler, and more hilariously, some people, I remember reading some article in Outlook, it calls Tipu as a rocket scientist. So let's puncture these myths one by one. We'll begin with something called the sword of Tipu Sultan. So, until about uh, 1974, uh, the general public uh, perception, cultural perception or what you call popular culture, the perception of Tipu was nothing but as a tyrant. But in uh, 1974, Tipu's rehabilitation as a freedom fighter, as a no, rather as a tiger of Mysore, began roughly with uh, a novel. A, a very horribly written novel by uh, 
writer called Bhagwan is Bidwan. It was titled The Sword of Tipu Sultan. It was a novel based not on history, but uh, by the author's fertile imagination, that is putting it mind. So this novel was uh, eventually made into a series uh, bearing the same title by Sanjay Khan. He's uh, the brother of Feroz Khan. And uh, he's also the father-in-law of Hrithik uh, Roshan. And uh, this serial, the moment it came out, uh, it evoked widespread protests across Karnataka and more importantly across Kerala. The Bombay Kerala Samajam, it approached the Bombay High Court uh, to grant, uh, to you know, stop the series because it hurt their sentiments. <coughs> so eventually what happened was that uh, Sanjay Khan um, reached a compromise and he began to air the show. The show was stopped actually. So he began to air the show with a disclaimer that uh, none of the stuff shown in the series is uh, uh, based on historical truths and that it's a work of fiction. So this fake image of uh, Tipu Sultan as a freedom fighter, as a great patriot and whatever, it was taken to a different level by none other than by Girish Karnad, who wrote the play, my friend knows him very well, who wrote the play, a Kannada play called uh, Tipu in a Kanasuvaru, translated into English called uh, The Dreams of Tipu Sultan. It pretty much followed the model of Bhagwan is Gidwani. So this was followed in 2011 uh, with a proposal by Rahman Khan, the then Union Minister for Minority Affairs, uh, which submitted a proposal to establish an Islamic university or a Urdu university near Shriyanapatna. Uh, that was the capital of Tipu Sultan. So the university was proposed to be named after Tipu Sultan. And uh, the same Rahman Khan uh, has also taken a franchisee of uh, a DPS school in Bangalore. But apart from these guys, guess who else has honored Tipu? Take a while, please. Uh, Vijay Malia, he got the sword of Tipu. Yeah. Okay. 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 Who else? <laughs> who else? He's a neighbor. Pakistan has named one of its missiles after Tipu to commemorate his exploits in India and it is consistent with naming its missiles. Some other names of its missiles uh, include Ghaznavi, Gauri, Abdali and Bhagavad. So uh, let's look at what the oral tradition uh, of Karnataka says in, uh, in popular imagination like I said about Tipu Sultan. In Kurg or Kodagu, in Sakleshpur regions, street dogs, street mongrels are named Tipu. Like a dog is barking, what do you do? You say Sharap or whatever, right? It was told. They don't call it Sharap, they call it Tipu. Even today. So that is the status of Tipu Sulta in Canada. Why? I mean, do these people really know all that? Have they studied Tipu's history? This is what I call civilizational memory. And it persists for a reason, for a very strong reason, as we shall see. Also, a branch of Ayangar community uh, hailing from Mel Kote, it doesn't celebrate Deepavali even today, since uh, uh, the later half of the 18th century, even today they don't celebrate all those three days. And several Kodawa Muslim families in Kur even today retain their original Hindu last names 
like you can have bidanda, kodanda, all these typical Kurdi surnames, Chandapa, typical Kurdi surnames, the first name will be Muslim. The last name is still the original Kodava, Hindu name, because this is also, uh, I don't know, a negative way, maybe, of retaining the memory of what happened to their ancestors. And uh, equally in the Kerala oral tradition, I think Sandeep Kumar is better informed on this, the Kerala oral tradition remembers Tipu's aggression in the Malabar region uh, in a very brutal manner. Uh, in Malayalam it's called Padayotam. I hope I got the pronunciation right. It means a military march. That military march is a polite term to describe the manner in which Tipu literally burnt down the entire Malabar region. And the uh, so the other thing is, ironically, you have a wealth of historical records that, that is easily available, easily accessible to anybody who is interested to know about the uh, historical reality of Tipu Sultan, which show him in the exact opposite light of a patriot and a freedom fighter and all those rocket scientists nonsense that is being peddled about. There, I mean, some of these records are written by Tipu's own contemporaries, by his own court historians, who show no hesitation in you know, glorifying all these Muslim court historians, they would glorify the grand uh, jihadists launched by their masters as, you know, they are doing this as a pious service to the cause of Islam. They show no, I mean, they, they, they are not embarrassed at all. On the contrary, they are proud of this. So you have all these uh, contemporary reports by his own biographer and uh, some of the partial list of books that if you are interested you can read in the uh, primary sources. Uh, a very good book is uh, titled Haider Ali and Tipu Sultan. Uh, the author is by a British uh, uh, general or army person named uh, Levin B. Bowring. Uh, the Mysore Gazetteer, Volume 1 and 2. Selected Letters of Tipu Sultan by Colonel William Kirkpatrick. The Nishan E. Haidari by Mir Hussain Ali Kirmani. He is the <coughs> East Tipu's official biographer, the Malabar Manual, and uh, the British archives at Fort uh, St. George in uh, Chennai and uh, Fort St. Williams in Kolkata. So this is a partial list. And uh, uh, another good book is uh, The Economic History of Mysore. And uh, so given all these records which are readily available, uh, it is astonishing that you know how they could create this kind of So, I'll give a uh, brief list of some key features of uh, Tipu's rule and then we can expand on this in a more interactive fashion in the Q&A session, right? So, Tipu's rule was a regime of military and economic terror, military terror and economic impoverishment and unluckily if you were a Hindu, it would be economic terror for you. It was characterized by numerous destructive raids in South India, most notably in the Malabar and food and mangrove to a great extent. Uh, several villages were burned down completely in Pushalnagar, Talkaveli, Madikeri, Napokru, all these formed the general region of Calicut or Kolikod was completely razed to the government or literally burned down. At that time, Calicut or Kolikod was a hub of spice to that one account, with that one destruction, it changed its character forever. If you have, anyone of you have ever visited the Calicut today, 
you see some of these huge mosques they are named after tipu sultan some of the locals will tell you that it was erected by tipu sultan it was so brutal that spice trade came to an end in calicut for 40 years nothing ever grew because people were not there the whole city was burnt down to the ground not only that all of these towns and cities were literally depopulated and those who survived were tortured possibly converted or killed brutally i'm not going to the gory details uh, because it's not easy on the thing you can read my book or research online so you know tying pregnant women with their babies uh, you know, on the back and then putting them on the rope and hanging them while they this kind of thing so it's really barbaric so i'll spare you that another key feature was the large scale destruction of hindu uh, temples so i mean he follows the same footsteps of babar and company so the malabar manual if you are interested it gives a complete uh, near complete or at least a detailed list of all the temples that uh, he has destroyed uh, in my book i have listed about 56 major temples that he destroyed in generally generally in south india and according to louis rice uh, rice who writes in the mysore gazette here quote in the vast empire of tipu sultan on the event of his death there were only two hindu patron of kanara on the contrary uh until uh, even his father didn't do this hyderabad hyderabad actually used up the throne of uh, mysore even hyderabad didn't do this until his time all the administrative official records used to be written in two languages kannada and marathi after he came he dismantled that and he introduced a weird system of farsi that continues even today for example you go to a police station and write a complaint that is not kannada except for some names like you know father mother whatever this happened name and you know, it's not kannada it is not urdu it is not even farsi it's a bastardization of all these three languages so and then the economic devastation he nearly devastated the uh, mysore state's economy through reckless needless and expensive unprovoked military campaigns he appointed completely incompetent officers to key posts the only qualification only two qualifications required were you have to be his flatterer you have to be his it doesn't matter so you appoint a petrol pump attendant i mean with due respect to them as a head of his all because of us this is what he did and he abolished all taxes for muslims and obviously there were other raids you know he changed uh, nearly <coughs> managed to change the uh, thoroughly hindu character of uh, tiruvankur tramanpur uh, he attacked the nizam of hyderabad obviously kur malabar adoni in andhra sakleshpur in karnataka bijapur raichur and he was an expert breaker of treaties uh, including with uh, the british and uh, <coughs> sorry the other rulers of south india so i'll divide uh, his record uh, in two ways one is what tipu's own contemporaries have said in their own words about tipu and what tipu himself has said about himself so the first part to get a brief glimpse into the nature of tipu's conquests uh, we can examine the words of uh, uh, father bartolomeo 
he writes in his book called A Voyage, it's a travelogue. It's called A Voyage to the Indies. Open quote. First a core of 13,000 barbarians who butchered everybody on the way, followed by the field gun unit. Tipu was riding on an elephant behind which another army of 30,000 soldiers followed. Most of the men and women were hanged in Calicut. First the mothers were hanged with their children tied to their necks. That barbarian Tipu Sultan tied the naked Christians and Hindus to the legs of elephants and made the elephants move around till the bodies of the helpless victims were torn into pieces. Temples and churches were ordered to be burned down, desecrated and destroyed. Christian and Hindu women were forced to marry Mohammedans and similarly, their men were forced to marry Mohammedan women. Those Christians who refused to be honored with Islam were ordered to be killed by hanging immediately. Next, we have the account of a German missionary named Contest. Quote, Accompanied by an army of 60,000, Tipu Sultan came to Kodikod in 1788 and raised it to the ground. It is not possible even to describe the brutalities committed by that Islamic barbarian from Mysore. And next we have the account of Colonel William Kirkpatrick who translated about 2000 letters that Tipu wrote to himself. So this is an extremely valuable and first hand document. So Tipu, as I uh, read the second or third chapter, so I say that, I mean, give elaborate uh, examples there. So condense that. Tipu had, uh, he was a bit of a mental case. So he had these grand dreams where a bearded guy would come in his dream. Uh, he was a, one of, uh, I mean, Muhammad's apostles or one of those guys close to him. And he would consistently, constantly tell him, Oh Tipu, when will you establish the light of Islam in India? So Tipu's, uh, he writes to himself that, you know, all my life, this is uh, my objective. You know where he wrote this in pure Farsi? He would go to his toilet every morning and write those letters to himself. He kept it, preserved it secretly. So after the fall of Chirinapatna, where he was killed, the final battle in 1799, so the British uh, conquered, took over his forts and all his uh, other properties. And then they recovered a bunch of all these letters. This was later collated by uh, Colonel William Kirkpatrick, who cat catalogued them, organized them, and you know made sense of them, and then translated them into English and published them. So there are about uh, 2,000 letters. It's freely available. You can check it on archive.org. You can buy it from one of these places here. So I'm just quoting from one of those letters, uh, from sorry, from William Kirkpatrick. The importance of these letters consists in the vivid illustration which they afford of the talents and the disposition of their extraordinary author, who is here successively and repeatedly delineated in colors from his own pencil, as the cruel and relentless enemy, the intolerant bigot or furious fanatic, the oppressive and unjust ruler, the perfidious negotiator. And as they say, it is always best and the most authentic when the information comes straight from the horse's mouth. And so here we have something from Tipu's own words. Quote, With the grace of Prophet Muhammad and Allah, almost all Hindus in Calicut are converted to Islam. 
only on the borders of Cochin state a few are still not converted and determined to convert them very soon. I consider this as jihad to achieve that object. This is in a letter he uh, wrote to his military officer Syed Abdul Dulai in uh, 1788 after he destroyed Calcutta. Second letter. I have achieved a great victory recently in Malabar and over 4 lakh Hindus were converted to Islam. I am now determined to march against the cursed Raman Nair. This is a letter dated 19 January 1790 to his servant Badrus Juman Khan during his raid of Malabar. Third letter. In the event of your being obliged to assault the place, every living creature in it, whether man or woman, old or young, child, dog, cat or anything else must be put to the sword. This is in a letter to his head, head of regiment during the siege of Nargund in 1786. Next letter. The exciters of sedition in the court country, not looking to the consequences, raised their heads. Immediately we proceeded with the utmost speed and made prisoners of 40,000 cooks. Then carrying them away from their native country, we raised them to the honor of Islam, which means we converted them to Islam. This is in a letter to the Nawab of Karnul. His name is Ranmast Khan in 1788. So other facets of uh, Tipu's legacy. Uh, his regime and his administration was characterized by and it was run on religious, Islamic religious fanaticism. He did not, he called his kingdom as Khudadat Sarkar, which means the government of Khuda or the government of Allah. And as we have seen so far, he left behind a, a bankrupt economy. A couple of uh, facts to show that. Uh, because of all his thoughtless, unprovoked wars, there was a steep reduction in Mysore's military uh, force, the fighting force. Under his father, Hyder Ali, uh, the number, the total regular fighting force was about 1,20,000. Tipu reduced it to about half its number. And uh, obviously his reckless wars you know, destroyed the economy wherever he went, not just in Mysore. And uh, he, more importantly, he caused a permanent change in the cultural character of several cities and towns in India, most importantly in Karnataka. He also destroyed the educational system and language. Uh, to illustrate this, let me give you one example. Even today, in Tamil Nadu, Andhra and Kerala, Muslims speak the native language with the same kind of fluency and the same kind of uh, you know, expertise as Hindus do. But it is only in Karnataka uh, that Muslims speak in an unintelligible language. Like I said, it's a mix of Urdu, Farsi, Hindi and Kannada. Only a Kannadiga can understand if I, what I say. Katte ko pula ra dal ko, meronye karti se. Only a Kannadiga can understand. Alright. So, put a, put a garland on a, a donkey and donkey it on the procession. So, the next uh, myth is that, you know, he's a big patriot and a national hero and a freedom fighter. This again is one of the more uh, enduring myths which has no basis in history. So, if you look at uh, uh, the history of that period, uh, 
roughly the second half of uh, uh, second half of the 18th century you examine the survey the <coughs> landscape political landscape of uh, india especially south india what you see is a struggle for economic and political supremacy between the uh, british the french the marathas and tipu sultan right so tipu's own goal his stated goal in his own words was to bring india the infidel land under the sword of islam as we have just seen so far from various quotations so how on earth can you call him a freedom fighter when all he was doing is trying to establish the land of allah here how on earth can you call him a freedom fighter we'll come to that uh, in a fair bit of detail uh, a little later second point tipu actually allied with the french as a countervailing force to fight the marathas and the british how does this make him a freedom fighter why did he ally with another foreign power to fight yet another foreign power how does this under what definition of freedom struggle does this fall number 3 what is the fact that his repeated letters to you know the afghan king zaman shah turkish caliph uh, please come and invade india please come and invade india please come and invade india let's establish islam how on earth that uh, does that make him a freedom fighter and tipu's own time we must realize what the word british meant during that time it was not a british crown it was the british east india company which was waging you know uh, battling to for uh, economic and political supremacy in the political supremacy